0: horror fans. Say no to drugs and stay out of the basement. You're listening to Confessions of a Final Girl. Hello everyone. Thank you for tuning in. My name is Molly and I like scary movies. So I come here to process my feelings about them. Before I get to tonight's topic, which is the House of the Devil from 2009, I have a little confession to make. I have to tell you something, um, but you gotta promise that you're not gonna get mad at me. Once again, living under a rock has made me feel like a damn fool. I had no idea we were getting a new creep show series from Greg Nicotero, no less. And we're not just getting it, we got it. It was released at the end of last month on Shudder. Furthermore, I didn't even realize that Shudder is producing original content now. How does all of this stuff get past me all the time? I have to resubscribe to Shudder now. By the way, this episode is in no way sponsored by Shudder. I'm just so excited for them and for all of us. New creep show. It's just, it's exciting. I'm a bit of a sucker for anthologies in both film and on television, from Masters of Horror, which I've mentioned several times in previous episodes, to Body Bags, which just checks all of my boxes as far as films go. And the original Creepshow series has always been one of my favorites. Creepshow, and its sequel Creepshow 2, tell a handful of fantastic spooky stories, but the one that I remember actually being the most scared by is The Lonesome Death of Jordy Verrill, uh, which starred Stephen King. It was based on one of his short stories called Weeds. It's scared the crap out of me when I was a kid. I was terrified of the space moss. Got the stuff out of that meteor on me. And I'm gone. Going back and watching the episode now, it's just all camp all day long, but when I was a kid, man, it scared me to death. So Creepshow 2019 is a 12-episode series, and it was released, as I said, in late September, and from what I've seen of the trailers, it looks genuinely terrifying. I tend to avoid reading reviews before I watch something, but I did kind of glance at a couple of review headlines, mostly to pump myself up, like, even more than I already am. I didn't see any reviews lead with anything other than phrases like, some fun and bloody good. So right now, at this moment, my hopes are a little high. Honestly, though, even if the show itself turns out to be just so-so, the cast alone would be worth a watch for me. Adrian Barbeau, who appeared in Creepshow back in 82, DJ Qualls, Kid Cootie, Tobin Bell, and, of course, Jeffrey Combs, whose involvement in any project is enough to hold my attention. I also thought I saw Trisha Helfer in one of the trailers, but that turned out to be wishful thinking. One of these days, that wonderful woman will embrace her ultimate destiny as a scream queen. I am convinced I will never lose faith. But I'll definitely be watching the new creep show this week, so hopefully I'll have something to report for my next episode. Speaking of my next episode, while refining my schedule for confessions, I initially decided to commit to two episodes per month. I feel that right now that's the most realistic schedule for me. However, it is October. It was 55 degrees out today and raining. I got to wear my heavy coat and bust out my scarf collection and I was in heaven. It may not seem like much, but it's a big deal to me because here in Omaha, it rarely starts to feel like fall until fall is nearly over. So I'm in such a good mood right now. <laughs> Another thing that's put me in a good mood is that I am now in movie overload. October is a great month for horror films, obviously. So I was thinking, even though I do want to stick to that two episode per month commitment for the foreseeable future, since it's October, I'd like to try to post an episode a week. So for whatever that's worth, you can expect a new episode from me every week until October is done. Stay Stay tuned until the end of this episode for my discord and patreon information lastly as usual if you haven't seen the house of the devil from 2009 i encourage you to shut me down just turn me off and go watch it yourself otherwise i am about to spoil the entire film for you Ty West is one of those filmmakers who completely crept up on me. One day, he wasn't there, and the next, he was not only there, but also everyone was in love with him. And that enthusiasm doesn't seem to have died down at all. In fact, I've seen a handful of articles crop up just in the last few months praising the films of Ty West, and a couple of them even name West one of the most important horror directors of the decade. I really enjoyed The Sacrament. I would definitely put it up there on my list of higher quality found footage films, and i felt that framing the Jonestown Massacre as a horror story in the classic sense was clever if not a little redundant. My enjoyment of exploitation films varies on a case-by-case basis and in the case of The Sacrament I came down on the side of it was good. As far as The Innkeepers goes I want to get this out of the way now. I am not an admirer of The Innkeepers. I've seen it three times now. I kept going back to it because of all the high praise it's received from genre fans as well as critics and I couldn't shake the feeling that I was missing something. But after my third time through, I had to conclude that it's just not the film for me. I don't want to get too deep into it. I'm not here to review the innkeepers, but I don't get what the rest of the world sees in it. Whether or not West is a golden boy of modern horror, obviously it's not for me to say. What I can say is that The House of the Devil, which was written, directed, and edited by Ty West, is one of the best horror films I've seen in the last 10 years. It made its way into my regular fall rotation a few years back, and every time I see it, I love it more than I did the time before. this film was first recommended to me as a companion to Rosemary's Baby, and I can think of few films better suited for one another, honestly. Watching the two in the order in which they were released is a very singular experience, as ironically, it's almost as if one gives birth to the other right in front of you. Rosemary's Baby is arguably one of the most historically significant horror films ever made in part because of its indirect contribution to a revival of mass hysteria about Satanism in the 70s and 80s, otherwise known as the Satanic Panic, a phenomenon to which the House of the Devil pays beautiful homage. Please understand that I'm not blaming Rosemary's Baby for anything here, but with the success of Rosemary's Baby in 1968, the Manson family murders in 69, The Son of Sam in 1977, and of course the publication of a memoir of ritualistic child abuse called Michelle Remembers in 1980, which has since been debunked, people, with the help of fundamentalist Christian organizations and the Evening News, were a little more than paranoid about the devil. Hundreds of Americans lived in fear of the secret Satanist next door. It was a unique time for the modern world, and trust me, I am only touching down on an itty-bitty part of it. Thankfully, things started to die down around the mid-80s, and hundreds of false allegations of harmful satanic ritualism were discredited one by one, which led to the official debunking of ritual satanic abuse in the early 90s. It didn't really go away, though, so much as it mutated and was redirected. I was too young to remember the satanic panic as it was. But I remember Roderick Farrell and Columbine and various other tragedies caused by or surrounding emotionally unstable kids who the media and the collective church insisted were Satanists because they played D&D and or listened to Marilyn Manson. I also remember being dragged down to my vice principal's office in junior high and questioned about my clothes and makeup and being threatened with expulsion and accused of worshiping the devil. All of this is to illustrate that the satanic panic matters when watching the house of the Devil as that very particular set of fears is a big part of what gives this movie so much of its depth and charm. Because of the experiences I had and witnessed personally, as well as a lot of the films that I grew up loving, I've always been a little fascinated by the satanic panic, so that gives the house of the devil a slightly sharper edge for me. I may be a little biased. I also know some people are starting to get a little fatigued with all of the 80s nostalgia flying around in film and TV right now, not to mention fashion and music, but I'm not one of those people yet. And when it's done well, I am all in. The House of the Devil is an excellent example of that nostalgia done very well. One review of the film, written by Noel Murray of AV Club, remarks that House of the Devil is more a movie for genre cultists who want to immerse themselves in all the throwback details. The feathered hairstyles, the spiral phone cords, a thesaurus-sized Walkman blaring a song by the fix, and so on. While I definitely don't think the nostalgia is the only thing the movie has going for it, I have to admit it is a big selling point. In addition to those throwback details, as Marie calls them. The film was shot on modern 16mm, which also has quite a bit to do with its authenticity. The film was made for less than a million dollars, and it looks great for a low-budget film, truly, which, going back to The Sacrament for a second, one of my favorite reviews of that film said that a found footage film has no business looking so good, and I agree, and that's also exactly how I feel about The House of the Devil. It looks really, really good for an authentically vintage film. Cinematographer Elliot Rocket had a a lot to do with this I think and this is most definitely my favorite thing that he has done to date. The House of the Devil premiered at the Tribeca Film Festival in April of 2009. It was given a limited run in theaters in October of that same year and in early 2010 the film was released on DVD, Blu-ray, and VHS. The latter being a promotional gimmick that I am really sad to have missed. I finally broke down and got rid of my VCR last year and I'm already regretting it <laughs> probably because I kept all of my VHS. So now they're just sitting around in box gathering dust like sad little plastic orphans. Anyway, art direction for this film was handled by Chris Trujillo, who now works as a production designer for Stranger Things, which just makes perfect sense to me. Apparently, if you're trying to capture the look and feel of the 1980s accurately, make sure that that guy is on your team because wow. I mean, I realize a lot of people had hands in both projects, but he is a common link between them. I think another significant contributing factor to the authenticity of this film as an 80s inspired film set in the early 80s was The Wardrobe, which was done by Robin Fitzgerald, who I've never heard of and I haven't seen anything else she's worked on, but man, she did a fantastic job dressing the girls in this film. Um, as did Danielle No, the hairstylist, who also plays the creepy elderly mother in the movie, which I didn't know until recently. I thought that was really cool. I keep referring to the 80s and I think it's important to note that the year in which this film is set isn't actually spelled out at any point throughout, but in one scene, Samantha is listening to One Thing Leads to Another by The Fix, which was released in the summer of 1983, So it's clearly set sometime after that, but definitely still the 80s. I would say the fall of 83. So the House of the Devil tells the story of college sophomore Samantha Hughes, played by Jocelyn Donahue, who wants desperately to get out of her dorm and into her own apartment. In an effort to raise the money she needs, she takes a babysitting job that turns out to be a lot more than she bargained for. Hi, I'm Samantha, the babysitter. The film begins with this neat production logo for a company called Constructivision. I looked this company up and found absolutely nothing. It's much too cool a logo to have just been used for this one film. I looked hard for additional information about Constructivision, as well as Ring the Jing, which is another production logo we see before the movie. I couldn't find anything on either of them. I'm flummoxed. Were both of these production names just dreamed up for this movie and then never revisited? Or have I just forgotten how to properly use the internet to look for stuff? The final production logo we see is for glass-eye Picks, which I am familiar with. I know they exist, and I have enjoyed several of their productions, so at least there's no mystery there. But if anyone has any information regarding the whereabouts of Constructivision or Ring the Jang, please contact me, because I have questions for them. Once the largely enigmatic production logos have passed, we get a disclaimer that the film we're about to watch is based on true, unexplained events. I think the consensus here is that this isn't so much true as it was yet another way in which West is paying tribute to his favorite horror films. The text fades and we get a short credit sequence as we're introduced to Samantha. She's standing with her back to the camera, gazing out of a window in a small apartment. We see immediately that she's dressed warmly and in earth tones. The curtains next to her are a brown and beige tartan and there's an off-white rotary phone in the kitchen. We're presented with a color palette that right away makes this feel like an older film and makes it feel like an autumn film. In addition to Samantha, we also meet the landlady of this apartment, by none other than the fabulous Dee Wallace, and I'm, I'm always just so happy to see her. We learn that she's showing Samantha the apartment, which Samantha can't afford, but she wants it so badly that she's just kind of rolling with it. The landlady seems anxious to rent it to her to the point where when I first saw the film, I actually suspected the landlady of foul play almost immediately. At one point, she offers to waive the deposit because Samantha admits she doesn't have a lot of money, and I was just convinced from that moment that the landlady was evil. <laughs> also, I think it was wishful thinking on my part, as I simply wanted to see more of Dee. Sadly, she only appears on the first scene. Anyway, the two talk for a bit, both in and outside of the apartment. The landlady tells her she'll waive the deposit, so all Samantha has to come up with is the $300 for the first month. We learn that it's Wednesday, and the landlady wants the check by Monday. They part ways, and the actual credits begin in one of my favorite opening sequences possibly ever, especially when you consider the type of film that this is. The credits are perfect. All we see here, really, is Samantha walking from the apartment back to her university campus. The film was shot in and around Lakeville, Connecticut. Most of the film takes place indoors, but what exterior scenes we do get are beautiful. They chose a gorgeous part of the country. From what I understand, they also cast a lot of locals from Lakeville and the surrounding towns as well, which going back to the budget, I think also helped them stay under a million dollars. So Samantha's all bundled up and listening to music on her giant Walkman with the orange foam over the earpieces, and we get a series of freeze frames, and we get this excellent song, the the music for the film was done by Jeff Grace, who also scored I Sell the Dead, Stakeland, and The Innkeepers, all of which were at least in part produced by Glass Eye Picks. And while I didn't like The Innkeepers, it was undoubtedly well scored. Most of the music in The House of the Devil is very somber, featuring mostly a lone, solemn piano and accompanying strings, and it's just so haunting and lovely. As for this opening credit song, though, I've read a few comments over the years where people compare the instrumental here to Moving in Stereo by the cars, and I didn't hear it at first, but now I can't not hear it. it's perfect. When Samantha gets back to her campus, she bounces up to her dorm room, but when she gets there, she finds the old tube sock on the door handle, which lets her know that the room is a rockin'. So irritated, naturally, she bangs on the door and reminds her roommate Heather that it's morning time and not a good time to be having uninterruptible sex, but Heather is obviously too busy to be bothered, so Samantha storms off. Walking back through a courtyard, she passes by a bulletin board that features a bunch of notices. (laughs) They mysteriously look like they were all created by the same person. One of these notices is promoting an eclipse viewing for the astronomy society. And that's a bit of important underlying information that we're given as there is a pretty big, important eclipse happening on this night. Right smack in the middle of the bulletin board is a flyer that says simply babysitter needed. And the word sitter starts with a little dollar sign for the S, it's very eye-catching. Also because there's no other information on it apart from the little tabbies at the bottom, you know, where you can take a number. I wanna talk for a second actually about the phone numbers in this film. So you know how in movies phone numbers typically start with a 555 prefix to protect actual people from prank phone calls or any phone calls for that matter. In the house of the devil apart from one flyer on this bulletin board for a pizza place none of the phone numbers we see and we see a few start with 555. They all look like actual phone numbers. I mean they don't have area codes so that's something but otherwise they're just they're numbers. At first I thought it might be that we didn't start using 555 until the mid-80s and that I just never noticed, so I looked it up to be sure, and it turns out we implemented the 555 prefix in the 1960s. So either Ty West gives not a single fuck about whether or not people are prank called, or I don't know, maybe none of the numbers in the film are operational anymore. It's just an odd thing to see. I wasn't aware of how conditioned I had become to just accept the 555 prefix until it wasn't there. So Samantha takes a number from the babysitting flyer, finds a payphone, and calls. She gets a creepy automated answering machine request so she leaves a message saying she's interested in the job and hangs up. As she's walking away, the payphone rings, and this led to another research job for me because obviously I had to find out when caller ID became a thing. At this point, I feel like a dick who's just trying to prove that Ty West is wrong about the 80s for some reason. I swear it's not about that. I just like knowing when things were invented. So caller ID was also invented in the 1960s and popularized in the mid-80s, so it's definitely possible that the Allmans were able to see the number for the payphone from which Samantha called. So good job, Ty West. Samantha answers the payphone and the man on the other line, who is even creepier than his robotic answering machine message is Mr. Ullman, played by Tom Noonan. Please excuse the urgency, but if you're still interested, I would like to meet you. It's hard to say for sure if he's being overtly creepy here because we know we're watching a horror film, so a lot of us are expecting it. We're looking for it. I mean, I, I know I was. He is oddly formal with Samantha and a little awkward, but if she notices, she's too polite to say anything. And the two agree to meet outside of the student affairs office so they can chat and see if she's the right fit for the job. Presumably, he hangs up on her before she can ask any follow up questions, and she kind of eyes the phone suspiciously one last time before heading back to her dorm to grab a few things. I guess in. Case case the meeting goes well. Here we get some additional insight into why Samantha hates living on campus, as Heather is passed out on top of some rando who silently hits on Samantha as she packs up her stuff. Also, Heather's side of the room is completely trashed. In just a few seconds, they establish quite effectively that Heather and Samantha are very different people, and also that Heather is a bit of an ass. Samantha heads to the student center, drops her Walkman, illustrating the durability of Walkmans and one of the reasons that they were awesome, then sits and sits and sits some more on the front step until she finally concedes that she has been stood up. The first couple of times I saw this, I was confused by this. I didn't quite understand the point of Mr. Ullman arranging a meeting with her and then not showing up for it, knowing where we're headed, knowing the direction in which this film goes. I just never understood the point of this, but I very recently, while doing research in preparation for this episode, read a review of the film that just sort of casually mentioned in passing that the Ullmans scouted Samantha out. And that made so much sense to me. Everything clicked in my head when I read that of course that's what they would want because they have to make sure that she's the girl that she's their girl you know so they call they have her meet them someplace and then they they watch her. Can she wait for a long period of time without losing her mind? Can she entertain herself? Does she seem like a polite or high-strung person? Of course, the audience and Samantha don't know anything about this yet. To our knowledge, she has just been stood up by Mr. Allman, so she decides to vent her frustrations over pizza at a local restaurant, I assume, and this is where we meet her best friend Megan, played by Greta Gerwig. This introductory scene is the subject of one of my only complaints about the movie. We get a lot of good exposition here and some nice natural dialogue. We learn that Megan is a good friend to Samantha, that she's got her back. We also learn that Megan comes from money and that Samantha only has $84 in her bank account, which is confirmation that she can't even afford the first month's rent for the apartment she saw earlier. Megan also suggests to her that Samantha take down all the other flyers advertising the babysitting job around campus as a kind of small revenge scheme for being stood up. There's a lot of good information that we get here, some of which we reference later, but I can hardly focus on any of that because the entire time they're talking, Megan is eating a piece of pizza that she doesn't like the taste of, and it is awful. Whether it was the direction, or the editing, or Greta, I don't think it was Greta. They keep cutting to these tight shots of her as she's making yucky faces. She's half chewing with her mouth open, licking her fingers and her teeth, and it's so damn distracting, and it lasts as I said, through the entirety of the scene, which is not a short scene. It contributes nothing to my understanding of her as a character, and I cannot stress how much I don't like it. I don't even think I'm doing it justice. It's just very off-putting. Thankfully, they eventually leave the restaurant and their disgusting pizza behind, and Samantha goes back to her dorm room again, where Heather is still sleeping and snoring, and it drives Samantha crazy. She goes into the communal bathroom, turns on all the faucets, and proceeds to cry it out in a bathroom stall. Now, unlike the pizza shops, scene. This is actually one of my favorite moments in the film because it builds tension in a very unique way, in a way that I never would have expected. It's partly the camera work. We get some interesting angles of the fixtures in the bathroom and a spectacular close-up on Samantha. Also, Jocelyn Donahue has a bit of a Mona Lisa thing going on in that her face isn't super expressive, and that works really well for this character. She has this sweet, stoic quality. So to see her kind of break down in this moment beneath the sound of rushing water, as it echoes through the empty bathroom, it's very moving. And the tension comes, I think, from the knowledge that where she is headed is not a good place. And in all likelihood, the problems that she's crying over right now are going to seem pretty trivial by the end of the film. It leaves me with this sense of anticipation. It's also a very isolating scene that feels like it's almost creating dread from dread. As an additional side note, Jocelyn Donahue was, prior to her role in this film, cast as characters with names like Cute Girl and Young Woman, and I'm really glad they gave her not only a name, but some time in the spotlight, because I think she did such a good job in this movie. Her Samantha is very sympathetic, and she really keeps me glued to the screen. I don't want anything bad to happen to her, ever, which, in my opinion, is exactly how it should be. Back in her dorm room, a very hungover Heather has finally woken up, and when Samantha returns, she tells her somebody called for her. She calls this person back. It turns out to be Mr. Ullman who feels awful about standing her up earlier. He says he had another girl lined up for the job that fell through and he hopes Samantha is still interested in sitting for him. Because of the late hour they won't be able to meet up beforehand though so Samantha would have to just head out there without any additional information. Of course this is a terrible idea but she's desperate for money and doesn't know she's in a horror movie so she takes the job and she and Megan drive out to the Ullmans together. The Ullmans live pretty far out of town so much so that Megan had to look at map to figure out how to get there which in the days before gps was kind of a big deal on the way there they pass by an old cemetery and we get a delightfully spooky shot of it and a much more enjoyable conversation between the girls you know it's not like the moon's gonna explode (laughs) although that would be pretty cool During this trip, Megan confesses that she went around and tore all the babysitting flyers down, despite Samantha's insistence against it, and she's very apologetic and funny. Now, the house they chose as the main setting for this story, it was a wonderful choice. Because knowing what we know, which is that this house doesn't actually belong to the Ulmens, or it didn't, at least until very recently, if you picture this house in broad daylight in autumn with the family that used to live there, it's actually very homey and charming, both inside and outside. and I noticed this particularly in the bathrooms, but when you know what's inside the house now, and the way it's presented to us here at night, with the moon hanging over it and the cemetery close by, as well as the accompanying music, it's so foreboding. I think they chose the perfect house for that duality. In the driveway, we see a red Volvo, which turns out to be a pretty important car, and a brown panel van parked away from the house a little. Megan makes a remark about the Volvo, they get out, they walk up the giant steps, knock on the giant door, and are greeted by a giant Mr. Ullman. Although we don't see him in full at first, just his torso in a moment of, it almost feels like forced perspective, which makes him seem just like this tree of a human being looming over the girls as they stare up at him with their mouths open. He has a cane and he's wearing a black suit. He looks a lot like a mortician. And before I can move on to what I love about this, I do have to get my other big complaint about the movie over and done. And to make this particular complaint, I have to go back to Rosemary's Baby. One of the most effective things about Rosemary's baby for me in terms of lasting horror is how normal and seemingly trustworthy her neighbors are. Even her husband, who is definitely an asshole, is on his surface also just an everyday kind of guy. It makes the horrors that Rosemary suffers because of these people all the more terrifying that it was happening right under her nose. I'm also reminded of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Next Generation, which I realize isn't the most popular chainsaw film, but it really freaked me out when I was younger because of one character, Darla, played by Tony Perensky. Darla scared me as a kid because she seemed like a perfectly rational and even kind person, so much so that it took Jenny a long time to process how sick and twisted she actually was well after it was revealed to her. Another example of this, though a little different in execution, is George Cukor's Gaslight, one of my all-time favorite films, where Ingrid Bergman is slowly driven insane by her seemingly loving and fretful husband so he can steal her late aunt's fortune. It's another one of those, the horror is happening right in front of you, but you can't see it because it's so cleverly disguised kind of things. And I love that. Mr. Allman is, from the minute Samantha first meets him over the phone, unsettling. He talks and acts strangely and now that we see him, he certainly looks like a creepy guy, especially as he's being played by Tom Noonan, who I saw first as Frankenstein's monster in Monster Squad and he was very well cast in that film, in that role, for a reason. I really like Tom Noonan and his portrayal of Mr. Allman here as the character is written is fantastic. I just wish the character and his wife had been written a little differently. West had an opportunity here to play up that fear of terrible things happening right next door that I so associate with the satanic panic, and he didn't. Instead, he gives us obviously untrustworthy characters that leave us feeling irritated with Samantha for not realizing the danger right away. Now, I'm not saying I'm not also irritated with Rosemary from Rosemary's Baby at times, because I am, and that intensifies as the film progresses, but it's a little bit more understandable. All the same, they meet Mr. Ullman, who invites them in, and the three have a very uncomfortable chat in one of the living rooms, during which time it's pretty clear that Ullman wasn't expecting two babysitters, and Megan asks him some questions that draw out his odd behavior even more. This place is quite the astronomer's dream. Are you an astronomer? No, not exactly. I love Megan in that moment. Eventually, Allman takes Samantha into the kitchen for a more private conversation where he reveals to her that he lied about the job. He doesn't actually need her to watch a baby, he needs her to watch his elderly mother-in-law. It's during this scene that I do see a little bit of that normalcy that I wanted from the Allmans, as Mr. Allman does come across as a little sad and frustrated as he explains that his wife is paranoid about leaving her mother alone. But then, when Samantha apologizes and tells him she has no experience caring for the elderly, he offer Samantha a total of $300 $300 for the night and I'm back to feeling like something seriously messed up is going on. She tells him she'll do it for 400 and he agrees and then we get some more great friending from Megan who is really not okay with the whole situation once Samantha fills her in. This equals first month's rent and then some and all I have to do is sit inside and watch TV. It's too good to be true. Did you ever think it is too good to be true? Samantha convinces Megan that everything will be alright and makes her promise to pick her up at 1230 which she of course will and Megan leaves. And I'm now frustrated with Samantha as Mr. Ullman simply told her he wouldn't pay both of the girls for babysitting or mommy sitting. He never actually said Megan couldn't stay. I mean it was obvious that Megan made him uncomfortable but it seems silly to me to send your best friend all the way back into town when she could just as easily keep you company. Especially when this is the era before cell phones and Samantha doesn't have a car. It seems to me very stupid and it's about to be proven even more stupid by the fact that when she drives away she gets about to the cemetery area and then gets a flat tire. At least I think it's a flat tire. It happens very quickly and quietly. But she pulls into the cemetery, rolls down her car window, pushes the car lighter into place and waits for it to pop so that she can light the cigarette that's dangling from her mouth. I don't know what her plan is here. If she does have a flat tire, maybe she's gonna have a cigarette, think about her life choices and then go back to the almonds. There are no cell phones. She's kind of out in the middle of nowhere. But we never find out what her plan was because suddenly a hand appears inside her window with a Zippo lighter trying to light her cigarette for her. Megan is naturally completely freaked out She nearly hyperventilates, and an apologetic A.J. Bowen explains to her that he was just trying to help. I really enjoy A.J. Bowen as an actor in this genre. I like him in Your Next, I like him in The Sacrament. He has a real layered quality to him that makes him well-suited for these films. And building from that, A.J. Bowen's character, who turns out to be Victor Allman, the son of Mr. and Mrs. Allman, he is the unassuming kind of well-hidden scary that I love. His act doesn't last long, but it works well for a few minutes. He really does just seem like a normal, dude who happened to see Megan in her car while walking by the problem with that is that there's really nothing normal about walking through a graveyard this far out of town after dark which Megan quickly realizes and she asks him where he came from this flips a switch in Victor's brain and he realizes that Megan isn't the babysitter when he asks her as much she starts to explain that her friend is the babysitter but she doesn't get far into that explanation because Victor pulls out a gun and shoots her in the head this kill confuses me I mean why does Victor kill Megan here I I really don't don't get it. He couldn't have killed her because she was Samantha's friend, because he was already pulling out the gun and aiming it at her before she actually said anything to that effect. Also, Mr. Ullman was surprised by Megan's appearance at the house, and as far as I can tell, Mr. Ullman has had no opportunity to relay that information to anyone, not even his wife, who we know is inside the house at this moment, let alone his son who's out wandering around the cemetery. Megan's death, as far as I know, doesn't contribute in any way to their end goal here, and I read one article article a while back that said the elderly mother, who we see much later, is wearing Megan's face as a mask, but I've watched this movie several times since then looking specifically for that, and I have to say that seems unlikely to me. Victor shoots Megan directly in the face, and when her body collapses onto the passenger seat, her face looks pretty well blown off. Later, when we see her body again, her face is, yeah, it's just, it's mangled. I mean, I guess the shooting might have been more to the side of the head, and the angle of the aftermath vague enough that this is possible, but that still doesn't answer why. Did the elderly mother need the mask of a college girl? Her face is like all messed up when you see it, um, the the elderly mother, but it doesn't look like a human mask. Also, Victor does seem a little panicked when he sits inside the car looking around, like he's trying to figure out what to do next. Is he just a killer, like flat out, and he did this because he couldn't help himself? One of my bigger questions about the film, is this kill? Regardless of the reasons, Megan is very dead. We cut back to the Ullmans where Mr. Ullman is having a heated conversation with someone we think is his wife upstairs while Samantha waits in the living room. But then Mrs. Ullman appears from the basement and demonstrates a complete disregard for personal space as she introduces herself. Mrs. Ullman is played by Mary Warrenoff, who has appeared in a gaggle of horror films throughout her long career, such as Silent Night, Bloody Night from 1974, not to be confused with Silent Night, Deadly Night, which was released 10 years later, Shopping Mall, Night of the Comet, and The Devil's Rejects. And again, much like Tom Noonan, I think she does a wonderful job with Mrs. Ullman as she is written. She's got a Cruella Deville thing going on with her big fur coat, which she explains to Samantha she keeps her furs in the basement. She's also, a close talker who sort of not so subtly questions Samantha about her sex life and then she and her husband meet up in the foyer to have a chat about Samantha's soon to be destiny right in front of her. You see things are working out perfectly after all and you doubted me. I know you were right and I was wrong. I'm sorry. This, I love. The two of them had this cute little exchange about how Mrs. Ullman thought tonight would be a bust and everything worked out just fine and how pleased she is with Samantha. And what they're really talking about is what they're going to do to her very soon. But Samantha and the audience think they're talking about their evening out on the town or wherever it is they're pretending to go. It took me a while to appreciate this ruse, actually, because I didn't understand the point of them pretending to leave the house. But Mr. Ullman makes a comment to Samantha earlier in the film when she calls him back from the dorm He tells her he wants to make this experience as painless for her as possible, and I think he's telling her the truth. Obviously, we and Samantha think he's talking about the job, which he's not, but I do think he's being honest. Samantha is, for their purposes, precious. They want to take care of her. They want to make sure that what she goes through is easy for her, or as easy as it can be. In their twisted way, this whole charade is for Samantha's benefit. So they leave, and we enter into a lengthy portion of the film where Samantha very slowly begins to realize there might be be something wrong with the house, which I think is so cool because there isn't anything wrong with the house, but she doesn't know that, and it's the house that's scaring her. It becomes almost like a haunted house story for a huge chunk in the middle. The Almonds told Samantha she wouldn't have to do much to help the elderly mother, that she would probably just be asleep upstairs the whole time, so she's prepared to just sit around. She plays pool in the den for a minute, she tries to do her homework unsuccessfully. She calls Megan a couple of times and gets frustrated by her trick answering machine message, which tricked me as much as it. Samantha. Hello? Hey. Oh, I'm not actually here. But leave me a message and I'll call you right back. Samantha orders a pizza with the money that the Ullman's left for her on the fridge and then she dances all around the house to one thing leads to another like a proper college girl from the 80s. The latter she does until she bumps into a vase and knocks it over, shattering it into many pieces. She grabs a broom and sweeps it up looking mortified and then she sees a nearby closet door that for some reason she decides to open. When she opens it, she finds it's filled with fur coats. This is the first red flag Samantha actually notices. Mrs. Ullman, when she came up from the basement, told her, her fur coats were down there. Why are they now in a closet on what I think is the second floor? The house is actually very disorienting in its layout, and I wonder sometimes if that wasn't also done on purpose. I haven't noticed any other references to The Shining in this film, but given how many horror films seem to have inspired this one, I would not put it past West and his crew to have intentionally shot the house uh, in a disorienting way. Similarly to what Kubrick did for the Overlook Hotel in The Shining. I get all turned around inside of it. Either way, she sees the closet and she finds that it's full of fur coats, which confuses her. So she starts digging around in the closet a little and she finds a bag full of photographs. The photos aren't of the almonds, however, but of a happy looking family, a mother, a father, and a son standing in front of the red Volvo that was parked outside earlier. And then we get a brief flashback scene of Megan pointing out the Volvo, then of the almonds getting into it when they left. So Samantha heads out onto the porch and looks out over the driveway, comparing it to the photograph and staring at the panel van on the other side of the drive starting to freak out, she goes back inside and tries to calm herself down. Inside, Samantha calls Megan again, who of course still doesn't answer, and this time it does more than frustrate her. She heads into the kitchen and grabs a knife from a woodblock on the counter, and this is where the tension really kicks up a couple of notches. Once she's scared enough, she starts to explore the house, and we as the audience, we don't know if there really is an elderly mother-in-law in the house, and if there is what she's actually doing upstairs. We don't know where the almonds really are, what Victor's game plan is, there's a lot that we don't know and things start to get pretty scary. Samantha starts hearing things like noises from upstairs so she makes her way up there and looks around stopping at one of the doors off the main hallway to listen and this is when we find out what happened to the family who used to live in this big beautiful house. They're dead. Samantha doesn't know this because she doesn't hear anything coming from the room so she just kind of walks on past it and keeps looking but the camera slowly pans through the door into the room and we see all three of the previous tenants including their young son have been sacrificed over a blood altar in the middle of the room. It looks like the son's eyes were gouged out too. I suppose it was either a pre-ritual needed for the full ritual they're about to have or they simply needed the house and offered the tenants up to the dark lord as an afterthought. My guess is that it was probably the ladder though we may never know for sure. Samantha gradually and cautiously makes her way up to the third floor where we presume the mother-in-law is. There's a door behind which is a staircase that leads up to that floor and she slowly walks up those stairs until she's interrupted by a very loud doorbell which screams from downstairs that her pizza which she ordered quite some time ago has arrived. I absolutely adore her reaction to the pizza guy getting there. She races downstairs, grabs the money off the fridge, opens the front door, grabs the pizza throws the money at him tells him to keep the change then slams the door and collapses with her back against it still clutching the knife and now holding the pizza like a pillow it is such a great scene and the music is awesome in this moment as well definitely some of my favorite music in the film it's very hitchcockian if that's a word that's a word right hitchcockian hitchcock-esque hitchcockial Sounds like Hitchcock. We don't see the pizza guy's face until she's closed the door on him, but uh-oh, it's Victor Allman. <laughs> Once Samantha and Megan first passed the cemetery on their way out to the almonds, it's sort of like Victor has been circling them, slowly stalking them a little, one might say. There's almost a vulture-like quality to Victor at this point. I think it's neat. I think it makes Victor especially unnerving. Back inside, because her fear is mounting, Samantha tries to call the number that Mr. Allman left for her in case of emergencies, but surprise surprise, it's not in service. So then, in a fit of absolute unfettered intelligence, she picks the phone back up and calls 911, but she hangs up instantly, the one opportunity that she has to save herself. And the 911 operator even calls her back to find out if she has an emergency, but at this point she thinks she's going crazy, so she apologizes and hangs up again. The thing about this story, as I've said several times so far, I love it, but it does raise a bunch of questions for me about what might have happened if things had gone just a little bit differently. I mean, obviously the end goal for the almonds would still have been the same, but it could have gone so many different ways. If Samantha hadn't found the closet with the fur coats, hadn't gotten freaked out, how would her interaction with Victor, the fake pizza delivery guy, have gone? If Megan hadn't gotten a flat tire, Victor wouldn't have killed her. So wouldn't Megan have been home to answer Samantha's phone calls? So much of the story is fueled by this plan that the almonds have, but the plan is actually pretty careless. They steal a house, and just barely try to hide that it isn't theirs. They randomly kill people who may or may not interfere based on, I I have no idea. And they hinge Samantha's complicitness on a pizza. What if she hadn't been hungry? How might this night have gone? I just feel like the almonds are a little sloppy. They're sloppy Satanists. Get it together, man. The Dark Lord is watching. In a further effort to calm herself down, Samantha grabs a slice of pizza and awkwardly watches Night of the Living Dead because it's a public domain horror movie and the budget was less than a million dollars until she realizes the pizza tastes pretty bad. I'm much less offended by Samantha's revelation about her pizza than I was about Megan's. She gets up, throws the rest of the pizza away, rinses her mouth out, then hears noises coming from the pipe in the kitchen sink and does a little bit more investigating. We get quite a few more of these slow, creeping exploration shots. She winds up back on the second floor where she finds a whole head of black hair in the bathtub. It's startling. It really is. I mean, for me, it was partly because I thought it was snakes the first time I saw it for some reason, but also because it's not something, an entire head of hair that seems to have just been chopped off is not what you expect to see. It's sufficiently creepy, and it definitely works on Samantha, who ends up back at the door leading up to the third floor. She gets even closer to the door that leads directly into the third floor this time, but then the pizza drugs, which we all knew she had unknowingly taken, kick in, and she stumbles back down into the second floor hallway and eventually passes out. One of the most frequently used adjectives in reviews of the houses the devil is withholding. And I think that's one of the best words to describe this film. And at least from me, it's a compliment. Apart from Megan's death, which happens pretty early on, and the shot we saw of the dead family on the second floor, we actually witness very little brutal violence until about an hour and 15 minutes into the film. And Samantha herself has experienced even less. It's not until right now that the film switches gears and brutalizes us. It's one of the best choices I think West could have made for this movie. We've waited for it, for so long, we've been expecting it around every corner, and what we have been given have been like little teasers. As awful as it sounds, we almost want Samantha to get attacked just so something will happen. Obviously, we also want her to survive. Or do we? (laughs) Once Samantha passes out in the hallway, we fade to black and when we come back, one of the scariest moments in the film, at least for me, has finally arrived. Samantha wakes up in a white gown on her back, hands and feet tied down with rope over a pentagram drawn in blood, surrounded by candles in what I'm pretty certain is that third floor or the attic of the house. This image, which was just so expertly crafted, flickers in and out of our view along with pulsating flashes of a blood moon and a lone candle burning. It's Samantha's scream that kickstarts the scene and the music screams right along with her. She's also gagged sort of, but it's like that thin bit of sheet gag that I've never understood because it almost never seems to keep people from screaming. She struggles, but she can't break free and in marches the Satan parade wearing their best cult robes led by Mr. Ullman and his creepy cane followed by Mrs. Ullman. Victor is there too, though we don't actually see him come in. Then the creepy mother-in-law appears played by Danielle No, the hairstylist I mentioned earlier. She reminds me kind of like of every witch in every children's story about witches ever. Whether or not she's actually related to the almonds I don't know. She is called mother in the credits. I think it's every bit as possible that she's simply someone with a knack for communicating with the devil who's working with the almonds. Regardless, I've watched her entrance many, many times to try and discern whether or not she's wearing a Megan mask, and it just doesn't look like she is to me. She just looks like an old crone in a, a very sort of classic fairy tale sense. The rest of the almonds watch Mr. Ulman or orgasmically so, as Mother draws a pentagram on Samantha's belly in blood, then sets a large horned animal skull on top of her, cuts herself, drains her own blood into the skull, and forces Samantha to drink it. The music gets very intense here, and knowing how the movie ends, I personally believe that that's the movie's way of telling us that the point of no return has been reached for our heroine. She sputters and coughs and fights so hard against this part of the ritual that she actually breaks one of the ropes around her arm, and Mother protests her escape by screaming really weirdly, but she doesn't try to stop her, so Samantha's able to untie the rest of her ropes and run away. Mrs. Ullman is shouting for someone to get her, but Mother and now Mr. Ullman are just doing that odd screaming thing. Victor chases after Samantha, but she jabs one of his eyes out with her bare hands because she's surprisingly badass. Then she trips over Megan's corpse in the hallway on the second floor, where we see again that her face is all fucked up. This fall, though, leaves Samantha covered in much more blood than she already was, and if you're the sort of person who thinks people look really beautiful all done up in fake blood like me. You'll have to agree. She looks amazing. Definitely one of my favorite final girl covered in blood from head to toe images. She just wears the blood well. The rest of the chase sees Victor and Mrs. Ullman dead by Samantha's hand. Victor gets his throat slashed, but not before he shoots Samantha in the shoulder, and his mom is stabbed in the back while praying to the devil for guidance. We also learn that it was Mrs. Ullman's hair Samantha found in the bathtub because she chopped it all off for some reason. A lot of the details of the ritual are unclear, and the chase, which I think is truly terrifying, is also at times a little hard to follow. Somehow Mr. Ullman gets stabbed. I couldn't pinpoint the exact moment, and I definitely cannot tell you what happened to the elderly creepy mother. I I have no idea what happened to her. So some of it is a little hard to follow, but it is, as I said, truly terrifying. We get some really nice disorienting angles and brief moments of repose, followed by yet still more violence. It's an onslaught. That's what it feels like, which is why I guess I don't mind that some of the details are vague. We are seeing all of this happen from Samantha's perspective. What is that word they use? Yoked. All of the events of the film are yoked to Samantha's perspective, and so if it's disorienting for her, it should be disorienting for us. If she doesn't see the mother again, if she stabs Mr. Ullman in a fit of panic and doesn't even remember doing it, if she thinks she's on the first floor but she's actually on the second, all of this makes a lot of sense to me. If we're looking at it through Samantha's eyes and she never gives up even as she starts seeing visions of the elderly mother in her head. She leaves the house, pursued by a wounded Mr. Ullman, who begs her to stop running. She doesn't though, of course, and he follows her as she runs into the cemetery where Megan met her demise. She stops running to cough up some of Mother's blood, which gives Mr. Ullman a little time to catch up, and he tells her he just wants to talk to her, and she screams bloody murder, delivering my favorite line of the film, which is simply, what have you done to me? In addition to hallucinations or visions of Mother's face, she also hears voices in her head now and Mr. Allman advises her to listen to them. Then he explains that she has been chosen. He also tells her that he doesn't care if he dies. Okay go ahead go ahead. Kill me if you want. I'm just a messenger who, who carries out his words. And that the eclipse is almost over which means her destiny is only moments away. And the event is in motion and it looks like in just a few seconds the moon will be entirely immersed in shadow. And then Samantha shoots herself. One of the biggest gripes that I've read and heard about this film over the years is the ending. Some people really don't like that she shoots herself. I personally thought that it was in that moment the ultimate act of sabotage. Killing Mr. Ullman would have given her closure in a sense, but once she realizes nothing can be done to stop their ritual and that he's prepared to die for what they've done, which with the voices now talking to her, I think Samantha understands her role in all of this. She's been chosen to be the mother of the Antichrist or some demonic creature within that vein. It made sense to me that she would destroy the vessel, which in this case is her, especially if the eclipse is about to end. And from what Ullman says, this leaves Samantha with the impression that she has until the eclipse is over to do something about it. So she had to think fast. I personally thought her decision was a brave and fierce decision, and Ullman was devastated by it. Unfortunately for Samantha though, killing oneself is a lot harder than it looks, so she doesn't actually die. We cut to some several nights later in a hospital, where on a small TV set is a news broadcast about the strange nature of the eclipse from nights before. Apparently, the eclipse accelerated, and nobody can explain why. We get a nice long shot of a clean white hallway leading into a room. That somber score reappears, and at this point, we know what's coming. We see Samantha all bandaged up, especially in the cranial region, and unconscious in a hospital bed, where a nurse comes in and pats her belly, telling her both she and her baby are going to be okay. So that's the House of the Devil. My takeaway from the film is that it's a tasteful and nearly perfect homage to some of history's finest horror films, as well as a fascinating return to an era of fear we're thankfully evolving away from. And it has definitely kept me interested in Ty West as a filmmaker throughout the years, even when other projects like The Innkeepers fall short. I was glad to start this year's Halloween season with it. I'll probably watch it again before too long, as it's becoming one of those films I just like having on while I do other things. There aren't enough students in the film for me to do superlatives, and I don't have a rating system like Bloodbath and Beyond, or well I guess I could just make one okay I that's what I'll do so for my first ever film rating I give the house of the devil eight out of ten demon babies If you're a fan of The House of the Devil, I would also recommend watching, of course, Rosemary's Baby from 1968, as well as the original version of The Omen from 1976, Mario Bava's classic Black Sunday, AKA The Mask of Satan from 1960, Suspiria from 1977, I can't speak to the 2018 remake because I haven't seen it, and my favorite film from last year, Hereditary, which I actually just recommend to anyone for any reason right now, but I also genuinely believe it would pair well with this movie thematically. I'm personally not a huge fan of. Of Lords of Salem, but I do think people who enjoy the House of the Devil and don't have an inherent aversion to Rob Zombie's films would enjoy it as well. To anyone out there listening, what was your worst babysitting experience? Or, if you've never babysat before, what are your thoughts on the house of the devil? Please feel free to join my Discord and share your thoughts with me and my other listeners. In order to join the Discord, you'll first want to go to patreon.com forward slash final girl confessions and about halfway down that first page in the about me section, you'll find an open invitation to the Discord just below the link to this podcast on Anchor FM. Big thanks to Xerxes, my very first patron, also the very first creator. Creepy Janitor over at Patreon. I should have known that if I created a Creepy Janitor tier, you would have been the first one to volunteer for it. Before I wrap up completely, as a personal aside, please remember that Satanism as it exists today is largely derived from the practices and philosophies of the Church of Satan, which was founded by Anton LaVey in 1966, and its practices in no way involve ritualistic sacrifice in the name of the devil. In fact, Satanists who self-identify as such are almost exclusively atheistic and view the concept of Satan being simply an adversary to the Church as an allegory for free thought. Apart from appearing in art and literature, Satan Satanic rituals, as we so often see them depicted, have always been less an actual practice and more just an easy accusation against allegedly blasphemous behavior. There have been very few actual harmful satanic rituals carried out by anyone in recorded history. Just a little food for thought. I hope you all have a fantastic weekend. I look forward to talking to you again next week where I think I'm going to focus on some of my favorite Halloween episodes of TV shows throughout history. I'm excited about that, actually. It's not movie-related, but it's Halloween. I'm in the mood for some spooky TV fun. Thanks so much for listening, guys. And until next time, creep it real.